Good morning. I too would like to welcome everyone here this morning. Could we all stand for a word of prayer? Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this privilege to gather together and worship you in a corporate setting. Just thank you for the truths we heard from your word so far this morning. Just pray that you would guide my thoughts and my words as I share here. It would be words from you. Just pray we could all learn from your word together. In your name we pray. Amen. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, that went down the skirts of his garments, as the dew of Hermon, and as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, even the life forevermore. Unity is a wonderful thing. So what is unity? Dictionary definition, the state or quality of being one. The state or quality of being in accord or harmony. My own definition I like to look at this morning, kind of the same idea. Getting along and working together for a common goal. So is unity a goal to pursue? Is unity automatically a good thing? How is unity obtained? Is unity more than just getting along? Can people be unified For a wrong cause. What do we do when we, with Jude, verse 3, where we see contend for the faith? That sounds like fighting. What did Jesus mean when he said he wasn't going to bring peace on the earth but a sword? These are questions we answer this morning, either directly or indirectly, in no particular order. So the title this morning is A Unified Church. You could turn with me for a scripture passage to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, first 16 verses. Paul writing here, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with longsuffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is above all, and through all, and in you all. 
but unto every one of us is given according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive, and gave gifts unto men. Now he that ascended, what is it, but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave some apostles, and some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro, and carried about, with every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men, and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love, may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together, and compacted by that which every joint suppieth, according to the effectual working of the measure of every part, making increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. First point this morning, a unified church pursues the unity of the Spirit. We read in verse 3, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This unity is the result of desiring to live out scriptural principles as a church. Unity, getting along, working together for a common goal. As a church, I believe our number one goal should be to live out scriptural principles. I believe this is the number one ingredient for a God-honoring, unified church. For there to be unity, everybody, everyone must have an honest desire to obey God and follow his commands. Unity, I believe, is a byproduct of something else, a common goal. So in and of itself, I'm of the belief that unity is not necessarily a goal to pursue. You ask the question, is unity a goal to pursue? Well, it's kind of a trick question. And we'll look at that a little bit more. But a common goal will bring unity. We look at the conflict over in Ukraine. My understanding is you, the country Ukraine was a lot like a lot of countries. You had people of different political persuasions that did not always see eye to eye and were, well, pretty much enemies. Kind of like you, if you look, watch, if you pay attention to the news, you have conflicting political personalities in the U.S. Understand that was the case in Ukraine. However, when an outside force, Russia, attacked 
suddenly they had unity. They were all, and they are all, just about all anyway, unified against Russia. And because they are unified, they are able to fight Russia in a way that most of the world thought not possible. All their other differences no longer mattered. They have a common goal to work towards. So if we, as a church, have a common goal following the scripture, and everyone works towards that goal in humility and submission, I believe we can have unity. So unity is more than just getting along. A unified church gets things accomplished. A unified church lives in harmony. If the goal is just getting along, we don't necessarily have unity. For example, suppose at 9 o'clock we all sat down, no song leader got up, and we all started singing our own song. And we had a common understanding that we just accept everybody's song and we all appreciate everybody. We're all sing our own song. Would that be unity? Would that be harmony? But we're getting along. We all like each other. Individually, we might be making a joyful noise. But for anybody listening, it would sound like chaos. So I think we can see that unity is more than just getting along. It has to be harmony. Just like when you sing, we have to have, we have to be unified on what we're singing and strive to the best of our abilities to sing the right tune. And as we desire to obey the scripture, it becomes necessary to give some guidelines how we will carry out scriptural principles. A couple weeks ago, maybe a few months, Brother Jared had a lesson on fences, and he drew a circle. So I drew a circle also. Fences. How will we carry out the scriptural principles we see? Fences, he said, are for our safety. Now my dad's fences prevent drift. We know we don't want to disobey, but how will we obey the scripture? And each church has to decide on some practical areas how we will live out certain scriptural principles. What does nonconformity look like for us? What will we do with the internet? Will we allow it or will we reject it? If we allow it, what parameters will we put in place? Because we know we don't want to just allow internet with no guidance as a church 
for everyone to do what is right in his own eyes. Or there will be drift. There are so many so many different areas we could talk about. I won't take the time. But if every man does what is right in his own eyes as to how to live out Scripture, almost without fail, some drift will occur. Some individuals will keep slowly moving further and further and doing less and less until they're no longer following the Scripture. And then others who are trying hard to follow Scripture will not be okay with that. And there will be disunity. And often, admittedly, fences are not put right on the edge of the biblical standard. It may not be biblically wrong to do something outside the fence that the church set in place. But for the sake of unity, a standard was set. So that everybody knows what is expected of them. Guidelines give the expectation, which brings unity, and everybody knows what is expected. And to go against the guidelines set by the church, I believe, is to cause disunity. And I would add here that I believe it's very unlikely for someone to develop a personal conviction that would go against the church guidelines. I suppose there might be some exceptions to that. But I would I would wonder if that if that would happen. So we've seen that there is a necessity that there be a guideline. But suppose someone comes along What do we do with that guy in our church? He's a square and a round setting. He has chosen to live by a higher standard than what the church has set. Does he fit in the church? Suppose a church has a Understanding, we don't want to be conformed to the world and ask their members to live within certain parameters on color of vehicles. Dark, subdued tones, not the flashy bright ones. That gives a lot of freedom. What about... What if that individual, the red square within the church, develops a conviction that he is going to drive only black vehicles? Does he fit within the church standards? He does. He has... He personally has shrunk his limitations for a personal conviction. It's still 
the church allows black, and the church also allows some other colors, but he personally is only okay with black. Is he causing disunity? I would say he... I would say no. Now, I'll address a little bit of that later. Because he is functioning within the guidelines. So can we, as the rest of the congregation, appreciate his conviction? I believe the answer is we must. And this could relate, this could be in so many different areas. We talked talk about the internet earlier. What if the church allows internet within certain parameters? And yet the red square says, I don't want any internet for my family. I'm going to totally reject it. He's still within the church standards. We must appreciate his conviction. Now on the flip side, we were looking at how the church relates to that individual. But on the flip side, how does he relate to the church? Can he accept that the church did not make their standard quite where he personally has his personal standard? I believe that he should not try to make everybody to be like him and run around and fuss at everybody else in the church who does not have his conviction. I believe that would be causing disunity. It is appropriate for him to, at times, explain how he arrived at his position and his thought process behind it and why he thought a certain area that the church allows is not quite within what he's comfortable with. But to try to make a church like him would be to cause disunity within the church. I want to be clear, we're only talking about how we apply scriptural principles. We are not talking about whether or not scriptural principles should be applied. If someone's in a church and discovers a biblical principle that the church does not practice, he should point it out, and he should not be okay at the churches not obeying the Bible. And there could be appropriate steps to be taken at that point. And look down a little bit here. So endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit. Now the order of the words is very important. We are to keep the unity of the Spirit. We are not commanded to pursue the Spirit of unity. There is a big difference. If the spirit of unity is most important, truth becomes less important. Unity is a byproduct of something else, a common goal. And the common goal of the church should be to follow the scripture. To make unity the goal is to misunderstand unity. That is merely getting along. As we've seen, if we all just sing our own song and get along, we're getting along. We're not unified. There are wrong sources of unity. 
a church could be unified around a goal that is unscriptural. That is wrong. A church could be united around a desire to be unified. And then I put unified in in quotations. Because how can you be unified around unity? You start to go round and round. It's more like being unified around a goal to get along. If unity, if a so-called unity itself becomes a source of unity, a downward, a downward spiral has begun. And there becomes a push to accept everyone as they are because we want to accept everyone. And we don't want to stand for truth lest we offend someone. And truth will become compromised to maintain this unity. And pretty soon can end up with what I would call a unity cult, which is trying to get along to the point where we are not no longer obeying Scripture. <clears throat> Compromise is often promoted as a nece- necessary ingredient for unity. And there could be some truth in that. Sometimes we need to we need to compromise on our personal preferences. For example, in a brothers' meeting, at times there's a financial need, and we can discuss how we're going to address the need. And there can be different ideas given, different numbers thrown out, how much we're going to give, or say we're just going to lift an offering for the need. And different people have different ideas, and there needs to be some give and take to come to a conclusion. And then we unify around what we decided. It's a little thing. But we never compromise scriptural truth so we can be unified. And unfortunately, when there is compromise on scriptural truth, those who stand for the truth end up being accused of causing disunity. Jesus said in John 10, I guess I'll turn there, John 10, 34, referred to it earlier. Um, I got the wrong passage. Anyway, it's not John 10.34. Anyway, Jesus said, Think not I am come to bring peace on the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. I believe what Jesus meant was the if you follow his ways, you're going to be setting yourself aside from the majority and there will be division. Not always to the point of a sword being used, although sometimes it does happen. When we looked earlier what a person does who finds himself in a church that refuses to follow the scripture, sometimes personal withdrawal is necessary 
if a church has no interest in following the truth. It must be these things must be done very carefully though. Never or rarely just for personal preferences. Leaving churches for new churches creates an instability. There are some people who hop from one church to the other and never really find a church home but spend their whole life one church to the other and there's an instability. There has to be a willingness to unify with a church and not not expect everyone else in the church to live out your personal preferences. However, when there is drift in a church, we are sometimes left with no option. In John 17, Jesus prayed. Look at a few verses there. Jesus prayed in John 17. He prayed for oneness of his disciples. John 17, starting verse 21 that they may all be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they may also be one in us, that the word that the world may believe that thou hast sent me, and the glory which thou hast which thou gavest me I give have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me, and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. So we see a picture that Jesus wanted his disciples of unity. So the world looking on would be drawn to the unified church. As we look at this oneness, we see that Jesus prayed that they may be one in us. In order to be one in us, which is the Father and the Son, which is Jesus and his Father and the Holy Spirit, we have to be following what God says in order to be one in the Trinity. So what does the Bible say about, what else does the Bible say about truth versus unity? In Second Thessalonians Second Thessalonians 3, verse 6, Paul says, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly, and not after the tradition which he received of us. So we see here another verse. Unity is not the ultimate goal. There are two options how to Obey the scripture. There is church discipline. Paul said, withdraw yourself. The church can withdraw themselves, discipline the disorderly person, so he does not spread his false doctrines or whatever it is he's spreading to the rest of the church. Or, if the church won't do it and the church continues to go on a, the church itself is headed in the wrong direction. Individuals may at times have to be the ones that personally do the withdrawing. In Jude verse 3, Jude says, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, 
It was needful to, for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. The faith is something precious to fight for, and we are to contend for it, lest we compromise. And I'm not going to take the time to read the whole chapter here. Then he goes on to talk about different individuals and circumstances where people were not following God. It comes down to verse 17. Verse 19. These be they who separate themselves, sensual having not the Spirit. That's an interesting verse. These be they who separate themselves. Those who do not follow the truth are in fact the ones who are causing divisions when division has to occur. Although on the surface, many times, it appears otherwise. Where those who stand for the truth get get accused of being causing disunity. So, endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit. The unity that comes from following the Holy Spirit and obeying the Word of God. And we see this picture in verses 4 to 6. There is one body and one Spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. At this point, I've been, for the most part, talking about unity in the local congregation. But how many churches are there? We just read here, there is, we get the idea there is only one church. <clears throat> We've just seen how Jesus prayed for there to be oneness. Jesus prayed for one church. And they would be one in us. Jesus' desire was that there would be, I believe, there would be one church and many congregations. But what we have today is many, is many churches of all flavors to the extent that you can find a church, no matter how you choose to live your lives. And there is a desire of some for there to be complete unity among all churches, and put aside differences because we could be unified because we are all Christians because we say we are. So what do we do with this? Unfortunately, the professing church has not lived up to what Jesus prayed for. We have already seen that unity is not the ultimate goal. So unfortunately, at times, there are necessary divisions to be made by those who desire to live for the truth. I believe it was about 500 years ago, if I got my history right, the Anabaptists took a stand for the Word of God. And there were different movements prior to that, which didn't make history as much 
many which we've probably never heard of due to lack of record-keeping. But anyway, the Anabaptists saw that Scripture was not all being obeyed. And they lived their lives according to Scripture. And they were accused of causing disunity because they would not be faithful to the Catholic Church. But ultimately, the division was, was already caused centuries earlier because truth was not followed. So yes, lines must be drawn so we don't get drawn away. Now, there are a lot of Bible-believing churches who do not follow all biblical doctrines. So what do we do with all this? What does Bible-believing mean? It's an interesting term. To the best of my knowledge, I'm not, I've never heard of a church that says we are not a Bible-believing church. I suppose that some church, well, some churches do have no professing desire to believe the Bible is the inspired word of God. And others say that they do. But there is a difference between believing the Bible as being the inspired word of God and obeying everything the Bible says. So yes, at times, lines must be drawn. Maybe not just at times. Lines must be drawn even though we would agree and appreciate perhaps over 90% of what these other Bible-believing Christians would say. And radio preachers often would fit into that category. Radio preachers typically are not of the Anabaptist persuasion, and we would have some very different understandings of Scripture from what they do. Their disobedience may be out of ignorance, because that's just the way they grew up. But just because they do not know does not make them right. We are not the ones to judge whether or not they are Christians, but they still cannot be our teachers if they are not going to follow the Word of God. And if we don't draw clear lines, we can't expect to lose our children to them. Lines are not to be crossed. Lines have a purpose. And that purpose is safety. So that we don't get drawn away. So that we stay on the straight and narrow and follow the word of God. Then the question comes up, had there been too many lines drawn between different churches. Among Anabaptist groups, especially. Among conservative Anabaptist groups, I believe we all have the same basic doctrines. Just to name a few, we believe in the Christian woman's head covering, believe divorce and remarriage is wrong, we believe in separation from the world, non-resistance, two-kingdom principle, and the list could go on. <clears throat> However, there are a lot 
of various different Anabaptist groups. And among those groups, there are a lot of variations of applications of the doctrines that we hold dear. So what do we do with this? I would make the observation that among conservative Anabaptists, which I define as those who hold scriptural principles that mainline Christianity does not hold, that's the definition I give to conservative Anabaptists, I believe there's two groups among these conservative Anabaptists. There are the the churches who hold the basic... Let me start There are two groups. Some are standing firm for the truth and going against the flow of the world, the flow of the mainstream Christianity. And then there are those who are at various speeds and at various points of being drawn along and not holding fast to the truth. So then we have this complicated situation where we have Anabaptist-Protestant hybrids. They start out Anabaptists and they're headed towards Protestant. And as we look around, there are we see churches who have completed that transition. And I believe that there are, unfortunately, many other churches who are somewhat in the process, somewhere along the process of making the transition. And the two groups are not necessarily defined by how conservative they are, although it does seem to play a part. So can we who are striving to go against the flow at least appreciate each other? I trust that we as a congregation are in the first group who are standing firm for the truth and going against the flow. So can we at least appreciate other groups who may have different applications than us, but still are going against the flow? And being faithful. Thinking down, thinking on the thought, have there been too many lines drawn? And I know this gets complicated. Because as a congregation, we drew our lines. We set up our lines for this, our safety where we believe they should be set. And someone else might have drawn a bigger circle. They were a little, they're comfortable going a little farther than we were. But yet, they're still holding firm. And admittedly, there are a lot of churches who have drawn a somewhat smaller circle, who don't allow the thing, all the things that we would allow. So, because of that fact, there may perhaps, may perhaps become necessary in order to protect the positions that we have taken as a local congregation, and it might be necessary for other churches have taken positions to serve the Lord separately and have kind of a kind of like Paul and Silas did. They didn't see eye to eye. I'm personally of the belief that Paul and Silas didn't have didn't hate each other. They didn't see eye to eye and they both went and served separately. So my challenge would be can we say you serve there and we'll serve here and we'll respect each other. I met a man 
several weeks ago, who would have been from a more conservative church setting than we are. We were talking a little bit, and he he made the statement that he can appreciate anyone who is going against the flow, who has taken a stand, and is continuing to take that stand. And I thought that was a good position. I thought that was a good attitude to have, to have towards me, who does feel some freedom to do things that he does not feel free to do. So then if we... And there are some ingredients for unity that we see in verse 2. Paul says, With all lowliness and meekness and long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. He says lowliness. Lowliness gives the idea of humility. Other people can have good ideas too. And other people's ideas might be better than my ideas. Am I humble enough? To admit it, or must I also always be out to prove why my idea is the best idea? Can I, in humility, submit to and own the church guidelines? Ephesians 5.21 says, Submitting yourselves to one another in the fear of the Lord. We need to consider ideas on their own merit and not on who said it. That's having respect to persons. In thinking of humility, how do we administer Matthew 18? How do we approach a brother who has an area in his life that we are concerned about? If we do any humility, it can make all the difference. Another ingredient Paul mentions here is meekness. Are we approachable. We talk about Matthew 18. How do we respond on the receiving end of Matthew 18? If we're the one who gets approached by someone else who sees an error in our life that might not be what it should. It's not it's not the most natural time for meekness to come out because it can be quite humiliating. To have a blind spot pointed out. And when a blind spot is pointed out in our lives, we suddenly have a carnal desire to go into defense. But can we be meek? Can we be approachable? And meekness and humility are very much go hand in hand. Long suffering, forbearing one another. Paul also, long-suffering and forbearance, Paul also mentions. Thinking of patience. Charity suffereth long. Are we patient with people? Do we bear long with people? Are we long-suffering? Do we love people enough to keep on loving them even when it gets hard? Even when they act unlovable? This can, can refer to dealing with the lost. However, we're talking mainly in unity within the church. 
So how do we deal with, how do we relate to people who tend to drive us crazy? Because realistically, there are some personalities that just do not mesh very well with each other. And they're always, it's always look at the world two different ways. And yet in a church setting, we're supposed to be unified. Do we have forbearance? I think we actually can do better in forbearance if we put some work into it. Someone else's ideas are not necessarily wrong just because they look at the world differently than us. Do we try, we should try to understand others' points of view. And in time, hopefully we can understand each other and understand how we process information and realize that different people process information differently. Just a few ingredients for unity. I believe the list could go on. The second point, a unified church values each member. We're referring mainly this morning to the local congregation, but this could apply to the broader church also. But I think most of the things we're looking at this morning give us enough to keep us busy at the local level. So we're mainly looking at the local level. So Paul gives a list of spiritual gifts here. And he has another and there's another list that includes some <clears throat> that includes some other gifts in Romans twelve, which we won't take the time to turn to, but Paul says here, starting verse eight, wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive, and gave gifts unto men. Now he that ascended, what is it? But that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth. He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Spiritual gifts are God-given. And we dare not despise a God-given gift in somebody else. Other people's gifts are valuable. We dare not be so individualistic as to not accept someone else using their gift and using their gift to speak into our lives. Because each of us, as humans, are imperfect, and we have blind spots, areas that we need improvement on. And everyone's spiritual gifts, working together, can remove all the blind spots, ideally. Hopefully, as we mature, we as Christians get less blind spots as we individually and corporately move on to perfection. Because, as he says in verse 12, 
spiritual gifts are given for the perfecting of the saints. So spiritual gifts bring unity. Paul then goes on, next several verses, talk about the purpose of the spiritual gifts. Verse 13, Paul says, Till we all come in the unity of the faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Spiritual gifts bring unity. That's inter- somewhat interesting, because spiritual gifts, at times, tend to clash. But when spiritual gifts are used correctly, we find that our gifts mesh quite well, and we become, and therefore are perfecting. One using his gifts helps others become more well-rounded. And, but we got to appreciate each other's gifts. Two gifts that I think tend to be naturally polar opposites would be the prophet and the mercy. And there can be a tendency for the prophet and the mercy to think they're at odds with each other. The prophet sees an individual mercy can see the prophet as being too hard on people that have an issue in their life, and the prophet can see the mercy as being too easy on them. But if they work together and appreciate the gift in the other, they can probably come to a very balanced way to approach a situation. And each one, using his gift properly, helps the other use his gift better. But we dare not despise others' gifts. Gifts are for the edifying of the body. Edifying of the body of Christ. They are to build the body up. Not to tear it down. Because in our humanness, we could tend to use our gift to tear the body down if we think that our gift is the most important and don't appreciate others' gifts. When all the gifts in the church are used properly, a church will experience unity. Spiritual gifts bring stability. Verse 14, That we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro, and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men, and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. Tossed to and fro. Sounds like a ship out in the ocean with no engine, sails, rudder, where nobody in charge is just out there being tossed to and fro, going wherever the waves take it. Some people notice things that other people don't. There are many false doctrines out there that we can get carried away by. And we need to make sure, and we need each other to make sure we do not get carried away by these false doctrines.
there are many people out, many false teachers in the world, who are just waiting to deceive us. Now, admittedly, some of them might not know they're false teachers, but still they are out, still they could deceive us. And as individuals functioning alone, we just might get carried away by a false doctrine. But working together as a congregation, using our gifts properly, some people can see some, a danger that other, people's can't, other people can't. We must realize that there ultimately is an enemy out there who's going about like a roaring lion seeking who he may desire, who he may devour. And a minor saying is a lion only roars once he's sure of his prey. Before he's roaring, he's sneaking around. So we got to realize that we have an enemy who is using people to deceive us. And because of that, we need each other to avoid being deceived and to stay on the straight and narrow. <clears throat> and there is a proper use of these spiritual gifts that God has given us. Paul says in verse 15, But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things which is the head, even Christ. We need to speak truth in love. When someone has become enamored by a false doctrine that looks good, we need to approach that situation carefully and speak truth in love because they may well have been given a promise of freedom from the, from the fences that the church put on them. And someone explain to them why the fences are bad. And they can have freedom. And they may well just already be on the outside of the fence. And if we don't approach the situation delicately, we may well chase them further down the new path that they have found. We must speak the truth in love. Hopefully there's still a desire within the individual to follow the truth. And if spoken in love, they can be drawn back and shown the error of what they have believed. That's just one area, to speak truth and love. There's so many. And every member has its place, we see in verse 16, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working of the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. Every member has its place. Every part of our body has its place. Now, I was thinking of an important part of the body that we don't normally directly use. Now, let's fall to the forearm. How often do we use our forearms directly? How often do we actually use the area between the wrist and the elbow to get a job accomplished? That's one job. The few. But often it's the hand that gets used the most. And the forearm just helps the hand get where it needs to be. How useful would a hand be without a forearm? Not very much. We'd have something like a five-legged bug running around on the floor. It can't get anything done except possibly scare people. But with a forearm, a hand becomes very useful. 
It's just the same in the body. Some gifts are not quite as noticed as others. And that's brought out more in Romans 12. But a, health, in a, but a healthy body, every member has every member has a purpose, a very important purpose. And there are no gaps between members. And Christ holds us all together. When we as a church are in him. As he made each of us to fit together perfectly, just like a perfectly functioning joint. We are not created to function as individuals. We are created to function as a body, each one using his gift properly. And a third point, not directly found in this passage, but a unified church has to fellowship together. In Hebrews 10, verse 25, we read, Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more, as you see the day approaching. How can we as a body grow together if we stay apart? We need each other, and we need to stay together so we can benefit each other. We need to worship in a corporate setting. We are commanded to praise God as individuals and corporately. There is a blessing in praising and worshiping God together. We meet in a corporate setting for instruction. We meet to hear the words spoken to us to be fed by our shepherds. We meet for exhortation. We need encouragement to stay faithful. We need encouragement. We need an exhortation to point out areas in our lives that need improvement. And so much the more as we see the day approaching. What day? I believe it's the day of the Lord. Paul writes a little bit about the imp- reason why this is important in Second Timothy three. Second Timothy three, verse thirteen. But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. So as the day approaches, evil men and seducers will become worse and worse. Because of this, the necessity for us holding together, meeting together as a congregation, becomes more and more important. We must study from and be instructed from the Word of God so we are not deceived. It is for our own spiritual safety. We will feel a disconnect if we do not fellowship often together. I know if I miss one Sunday here because of sickness or some other reason, I feel a disconnect. I feel like I missed out on something. And I believe I did. So 
So I believe we should make it a goal to attend all services and arrange our schedules to do so. It's not to say that we cannot fellowship elsewhere at times, but I think it should be only at times. Arrange our schedules. might be interesting for you to know that the way we schedule we milk our cows on throughout the week is pretty much done on that schedule so we can strive to make it to church services both Sunday morning and any evening service. I won't elaborate on that any further. You can ask me personally on that. But schedules need to be arranged so we can make it to services we are in great danger if we try to live if we try to live our Christian life solo. The enemy goes for the most vulnerable. Eldon had a lot of skulls up here that looked like they were once enemies. Enemies are the most vulnerable. Who does the enemy go after? Who's the most vulnerable? It's the one who's holding back. Now, granted, in the natural world, the one that's holding back often is the weakest, and nature removes the weakest animals. And in churches, there are those who, for whatever reason, are holding back. And we, and yes, we as a church need to come alongside them and try to pull them along so they are not vulnerable to the enemy. But we as individuals dare not choose to be weak. No one makes a conscious choice to be weak. But if we choose not to meet together, I believe that is by default the choice we are making. And a final point that I thought of, also not directly in passage there in Ephesians 4, but maybe a little bit in the spiritual gifts. A unified church follows its leaders. Leaders give directions. The human body, anybody, has a central command system. In our human bodies, it's the brain. No business, organization, team, army, or country, or anything else can function without leadership. And neither do they function without leadership. And neither can a church. I mentioned what it would be like if we all just sang our own song when we got to church. Typically, when we sing, we have a song leader who leads us in singing. Occasionally, we might sit together and someone starts a song, but actually, that person has become a song leader for that one song. Someone has got to lead to say what are we going to, what we are going to sing, and to keep us all on track. We are to obey our spiritual leaders. Eldon touched on this a little bit several weeks ago when he preached. I think I might repeat most of the some of the verses he said but we are to obey our spiritual leaders Hebrews 13:17 says 
Obey them that have the rule over you, and submit yourselves. For they watch for your souls, as they that must give account. For they do it with joy, and not with grief. For that is unprofitable for you. God so ordained it that a church would have leadership. To give direction. Church leaders have an incredible responsibility for our spiritual well-being. This verse says they are, they are responsible for our church, for our souls. Leaders stand between God and the church and feed the flock. They are our shepherds. They have been ordained by God for this purpose. It is their, it is a God-given responsibility. Now we as individuals also are responsible to pursue God, and we should. We have been also been given spiritual leaders to direct us in the things of God. Rebellion against God-ordained leadership is very serious. Back with the children of Israel in the desert, there was a man named Korah and his friends and several others who decided they were just as special as the God-ordained leaders, Moses and Aaron. And to show the seriousness of it, God had the ground open up, and they fell in, and they were gone. Rebellion against leadership makes things difficult for them. It gives them grief that they may do it, that they may lead us with joy and not with grief. Many of us here are parents. How much joy is it when our children refuse to obey us? It causes grief. It makes things not go smoothly. There is safety in being under proper authority. This is not bondage. Paul instructs in 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy 5.17 Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. Leader, our church leaders labor in the word for us. And as I prepare a message, it creates more appreciation for those who do it on a much more regular basis. It takes time. Can we appreciate what they do? And I think church leaders do a lot that we don't really notice. There's a lot more that goes into church leadership than standing in front of a congregation on a Sunday morning, I think. Actually, I know. Just because we may not agree with the decision the leadership makes does not make them unworthy of honor. <clears throat> now, we as individuals are responsible to know our Bibles good enough to know if what they teach us is true. We have the blessing of being able to each have our own individual copies of the Word of God, and we are to be familiar with the Word of God to know truth. Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. If our leaders are giving indication that they are following Christ, we have no reason to dishonor them. To not follow our leaders is rebellion against God. However, 
if our leadership, we are not to follow our leaders in rebellion against God. We do not disobey scripture just because church leaders say to. My observation, I've never been a church leader. My observation, as I've thought about it, is that church leadership is probably somewhat like parenting, just at a deeper level. Sometimes complicated situations arise, and it is difficult, if not impossible, to know how best to address it. I think each of us as parents have faced these situations at times. We really don't know all, might not know all the facts, and yet there's a situation we got to address. And we need to recognize this and let them lead. And most likely, God will be able to do a work through their leadership and a solution will be met. We should not be backseat drivers. Backseat drivers can cause a lot of chaos. They have lots of answers and yet don't really have any responsibility. And admittedly, there may well be more than one way to address a situation. It may all work. may be other ways that would work, just like in parenting. There might be several ways to fix the problem, but one way has to be decided. And I believe our leaders need that liberty from us. And finally, know our leaders. Paul says in First Thessalonians. 5 verses 12 and 13. And we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake and be at peace among yourselves. We are to know our leaders. We are to have a relationship with our leaders. Understand them and and then take an effort to understand them, get to know them, and they can get to know you. And this will help a lot in church life. While church leaders are worthy of respect, and we should hold them in high esteem, it doesn't mean we hold them at such a put them at such a pedestal that they are at a distance from us that we dare not ever try to have a friendly conversation with. We can have a relationship with the authority figures in our lives. As parents, we strive to have a relationship with our children. And it does not have a negative effect on the authority structure. In fact, it makes family life a lot more pleasant. And Paul says here, live at peace among yourselves. That makes things a lot easier for leadership, I believe. And it makes church life a lot nicer. Live at peace and unity. If we're at peace and unity, we can serve God a lot more effectively. And Paul said there in Ephesians 4.32, And be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. May we be a unified church. Could we kneel for prayer?
Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity to study from your word, to learn from you. We thank you for this church, this local body of believers, the opportunity to fellowship together and strive to follow you together. Just pray that as a congregation we could continue to have a desire to live out the principles that you've given us in your word. Pray that we could unify around these principles, be unified in how we are going to obey you. Pray that we could be a church that would be a joy to shepherd for our church leaders. Just pray to give them wisdom as they give us direction. Pray we could just go on in unity and serve you. In your name we pray. Amen.